Well, good morning. We'll make a start to our Bible class this morning. We'll open the Word of God to Hebrews chapter 10, please. Hebrews 10. And we'll read from verse 1, and then we'll look to the Lord in a word of prayer. So Hebrews 10, and commencing at verse 1. Let's hear the word of the Lord. For the law, having a shadow of the good things to come, and not the very image of the things, can never, with those sacrifices which they offered year by year continually, make the comers thereunto perfect, for then would they not have ceased to be offered, um, because that the worshippers once purged should have had no more conscience of sins. But in those sacrifices there is a remembrance again made of sins every year, for it is not possible that the blood of bulls and of goats should take away sins. Wherefore, when he cometh into the world, he saith, Sacrifice and offering thou wouldest not, but a body hast thou prepared me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin thou hast had no pleasure. Then said I, Lo, I come. In the volume of the book it is written of me, To do thy will, O God. Above, when he said, Sacrifice and offering and burnt offerings, and offering for sin thou wouldest not, neither hast pleasure therein, which are offered by the law. Then said he, Though I come to do thy will, O God. He taketh away the first, that he may establish the second. By the which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest standeth daily ministering and offering oftentimes the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God, from henceforth expecting till his enemies be made his footstool. Amen. We'll end there at verse 13. And we'll look to the Lord, uh, please, in a word of prayer. So let's just unite together in prayer and seek the Lord's blessing upon our, our study this morning. Let's pray. Our gracious God and loving and eternal Father, we thank thee that once again we can gather in thy presence and thy house in this thy day. We thank thee, Lord, for a place that we can turn aside from, Lord, our worldly pursuits, careers, the things that are legitimate in this life. We thank the Lord for this day of rest, not only a day of rest, but a day of rejoicing, a day which marks, O oh God, a resurrected Christ, a living Savior, an exalted and glorious Lord. We thank the Lord that we come to Thee in the name of our Savior and Redeemer. We thank the Lord that we can worship Thee, the only true God. We can render our thanks unto Thee, our gratitude for all mercies received in the week gone past. We thank Thee that Thou art the faithful God, has sustained us and kept us and provided for us even to this very hour. And we thank Thee, Lord, that we can come now and gather around Your Word. We're blessed, we're privileged indeed to have this faithful translation of the Word of God. We thank Thee, Lord, for a complete, O God, translation. We thank Thee, Lord, that we're not looking for any extra revelation. But, Lord, we're looking to understand Your Word more and more to be rooted and grounded in our faith, to be built up and established, to be strengthened, to be sanctified, 
Oh God, we pray that Thou will do this even through the adult Bible class. Remember those who watch online as well, those who maybe are preparing their hearts for morning worship in their own congregations, or Lord, others who are not near a faithful witness. We just pray, Lord, that Your Word will be glorified in the hearts of many. And Lord, that Thou would prosper it, Lord, and may it accomplish that which Thou would please. O God, hear our cry. I look to Thee now. I need Thy help. I confess my own weakness, my inability. Confess, O God, even as the Apostle Paul would say, who is sufficient for these things. Lord, we're handling the word of life. We're dealing with important cardinal truths of the gospel. Lord, places where men in the past have erred and have gone astray. And therefore, Lord, I cry to Thee for help. I cry to Thee, O God, for cleansing. And I ask that Thou would infill me with the Spirit of God. Take this vessel in its weakness. That's all I am, Lord. And make me a channel to speak unto Thy dear people, that Thou Thyself may be glorified. So hear prayer. Shut us in with Thee. Remember our Sunday school, our Bible classes. O Lord, each and every little boy and girl, we pray for the preparation of their heart the opening of their understanding, the application of the Word by the power of the Spirit to their soul, and that Thou would take our teachers and do this again for the glory of Thy name. So hear us, Lord, and shut us in with Thyself. For this I ask in Jesus' precious and His worthy name. Amen. Now we have been considering the seven feasts of the Lord as they're found in Leviticus uh, chapter 23, and we came to the Day of Atonement But before we looked at that day in particular, I thought it was prudent that we would consider the doctrine of atonement itself. And that's what we began to consider the last time. And in the first place, we thought about the explanation of the atonement, what it means. And we did so by studying the terms that are used in Scripture concerning it. We saw there's a close connection between atonement and forgiveness, between propitiation and expiation. And a concise definition of atonement is this, the satisfaction of divine justice by the Lord Jesus Christ in His active and passive obedience, that is, His life and His death, which procures for His people a perfect salvation. And then we moved on to consider the essentiality of the atonement. And this really, I said, could be understood by two questions. First, Did God, because of something in his own nature or something intrinsic to man, have to save sinners? Did he have to save any? Well, the biblical answer is no. It was not essential for him to do so. He did not have to save any. He could have left the whole human race to perish in their sins if he so desired. But it was out of his free and a sovereign grace that he decreed to save any. And we read about that in Ephesians chapter 1. It's according to the good pleasure of his will. And you know, that's a most glorious thought. It's a most humbling thought for us to consider. He did not of necessity have to create us. And he did not of necessity have to save us. But he has and he did. And he has made us inheritors of everlasting and eternal glory, praise be his name. And so there was nothing in him or nothing in us which made it essential or necessary for him to save any. 
But then we went on to consider a second question in relation to the necessity of the atonement. And the question was essentially this. Was the atonement necessary, or could God have saved sinners in some other way? And we considered three historical views concerning this. There's those who said, well, the atonement is not necessary to save any. God could have saved sinners in some other way. There was those, and they said, well, it's only relatively necessary because that's the way God decreed it, and therefore that's the way God had to do it. But then there's those who say that it was absolutely necessary. And we as Reformed, well, we fit into that group of uh, believers uh, that believe that the atonement is absolutely necessary. And I began to give you biblical evidence why it was absolutely necessary for the atonement to be made if sinners are to be saved. And most of those reasons for the necessity of the atonement are grounded or founded on the very basis of the character or the nature of God Himself. And we looked at two reasons the last time. Biblical evidence why the atonement was absolutely necessary. The first of those reasons was the justice and the righteousness of God. He must punish sin. He cannot deny himself, and he will maintain his own righteous standard doing what is right. So that was the first reason, his justice and his righteousness made the atonement absolutely necessary. The second reason we looked at was the holiness of God. A thrice holy God, he cannot have fellowship with that which is defiled by sin. And so by the atonement, the cleansing for sin was made. And so there's the first two reasons we, we considered in relation to the absolute necessity of the atonement. What I want to do this morning is to continue on with the biblical evidence or the reason why the atonement was necessary, why there was no other way but the cross for us as sinners to be saved. And I trust this will help us to be grounded in the truth. So really it's number three this morning on the essentiality of the atonement. Number three, the atonement was necessary because of the law of God. Because of the law of God. You see, God gave unto man a moral law, summarized in the Ten Commandments. And God's moral law helps us to understand His righteousness and His holiness, for the moral law is a reflection of the very character or the nature of God. We're told that in Romans chapter 7 and the verse 12. It tells us there that the law is holy and the commandments are just and good. And that's a reflection of God. God is holy, God is just, and God is good. Now why does the Lord command us not to bear false witness, not to lie? Well, it's because the Lord Himself is truth. Christ tells us that in John 14 and the verse 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Or we read that God, he cannot lie. Hebrews chapter 6 and the verse 13. One man made this comment. Ethical absolutes, they're not philosophical abstractions existing in some realm of supposed ideals. They are rooted in God's very being, and thus they are immutable and eternal as God himself. When God says we are to be holy as he is holy, well, if the law is holy, that's why God says in the law, thou shalt not bear false witness, 
because God himself is truth, and God himself cannot lie. The only reason that people have a sense of what is right and wrong is because man was created in the image of God and after his likeness. And as such, man has the moral fabric of the law written upon their heart. And we're taught that in Romans chapter 2 and verse 15. Now, granted, we can say, quite rightly so, because of man's fall into sin, that the law, well, it's become defaced upon man's heart. And because of man's depravity, well, he can be prone and has become prone to twist and pervert the law. And that is the reason why the law was codified and given in writing to Moses. Now, it's not that man from Adam to Moses uh, did not know the moral standard, did not know the law of God. It was written upon his heart. He did know that. But as I said, because of sinful nature and the inclination that sinful man possessed, he became prone to set aside the law or to distort the law. And we, we see the evidence of that today. And that's one of the reasons why God engraved his un, uh, unalterable law upon the tables of stone with his finger. As he cannot change, neither can his law, which is an expression of who he is. Now, why does the law then necessitate the work of the atonement? Well, the answer is obvious. You already know the answer. Transgression of the law inevitably carries a penalty. And the overriding principle of the law is found in Ezekiel chapter 18 and verse 20. Ezekiel chapter 18 and verse 20. If you want to turn there, if not, you can listen up. Ezekiel 18 and verse 20. It says there, The soul that sinneth, it shall die. The son shall not bear the iniquity of the father, Neither shall the Father bear the iniquity of the Son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon him, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon him. There we see the penalty for transgressing the law. We also see the accountability and the personal responsibility in keeping the law and in bearing the penalty for the broken law. Death is the penalty for sin. We all know what sin is, taught in 1 John chapter 3 and verse 4. It's transgression of God's law. And the Bible is full, as you well know, of references that teach that death, in all its forms, physical, spiritual, and eternal, is the penalty for sin. Romans 6, 23, probably being the prime example. Sin is a real criminal offense against God. And all men are guilty. Romans 3, 19. And yet most men, they do not know it or they do not feel it. This guilt, this realization that they've transgressed God's law. Modern philosophy and psychiatry, will they attempt to remove guilt feelings or explain them away in some other terms? But no one can remove guilt but God himself. He is the one who has been offended. And since all of us are guilty, it means then all of us are under the curse of the broken law. Galatians 3 
And the verse 10, it plainly teaches us that. Cursed is everyone that continueth not in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. Sinners are under condemnation. And the only way that a sinner can be delivered from the curse and condemnation in a manner by which God cannot deny himself is through the provision of a substitute, a surety, upon whom the strict justice of God for sin can be laid. The law of God demands the exercise of justice. And that's the reason why the atonement was necessary. The law pronounces, as I said, the curse upon the sinner that only Christ can eliminate. How does Christ do that? Well, you know, it's not by setting aside the curse, but it's by enduring the curse in the sinner's place. You go on to read there in Galatians 3 and the verse 13. Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. Now, since unbelievers, in their natural depravity, as well as non-Christian theists, such as the Muslims and uh, uh, the Jews, Islam and Judaism, they reject the biblical doctrine of the necessity of a substitutionary atonement well, there's a common heretical notion that has arisen or objection. It's often said that all that is needed to be right with God is repentance. That's what they would teach, just repentance. That is, well, one must tell God they're sorry for their sin and stop doing uh, what they're doing, turn over a new leaf, so to speak, and then God will forgive that person's sin. Now, that's the basis, the person's repentance. God just looks upon that with favor, and, and well, then God makes a decision to forgive. And those that do so, they base their argument on passages which speak of God relenting on a promised punishment because of a person's repentance. For example, Ahab. Well, he repented. It tells us in 1 Kings chapter 22, in the verses 27 to 29. But the problem there, they look at those passages and think, well, somehow that's, if, if a man just repents, well, then God just suddenly decides to forgive that person. That's not the basis of God's forgiveness. The problem with that view is that it confounds God's temporal punishments and blessings with His eternal sanctions. You see, obedience to God's law in the old dispensation it did bring about temporal blessings. And we read about that in Deuteronomy 28, the blessings. But also disobedience brought about the curses. And that's in the same chapter. However, the Bible never ever teaches that people can be saved or have their sins removed on the basis, on the grounds of just simply saying sorry or turning over a new leaf. That is never the basis for the forgiveness of sin. Now, sinners should repent, they must repent, they need to repent, and they need to believe, but that is never the basis. The central focus of the Old Testament ceremonial law was upon what? It wasn't upon the person coming really to say sorry. It was upon the sacrifice and the blood 
shedding. It was the blood that atoned for sin. And the law of God, it made it absolutely necessary for atonement to be made, for blood to be shed, for death is the penalty for sin. And that's why the Lord so clearly stated in Leviticus 17, and verse 11, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you upon the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that maketh atonement for the soul. And so the law of God, which really is a reflection of the Lord's justice and righteousness and holiness, the law given, the law written upon the heart, the penalty that comes from the broken law necessitates that atonement be made, that the penalty be paid, because that is the basis for the forgiveness of sins. Fourthly, and following on from this, the atonement was necessary, absolutely necessary, because of the requirement of a perfect righteousness. You see, we have seen that because God is holy, righteous, and just, His nature requires that sin must be punished with death, spiritual, physical, eternal. And therefore, we need a substitute who will pay for the penalty of a broken law in our place. However, the Bible teaches that having the guilt of our sins removed is not enough to gain eternal life. The Lord also requires a positive, perfect righteousness. God requires a life lived in perpetual righteousness, a life lived in perfect obedience to His law before eternal life is bestowed. That's the reward of obedience. And God cannot alter that. In order to gain the blessing of God, obedience must be perfect. Deuteronomy chapter 10. If you turn there, Deuteronomy chapter 10 and the verses 12 and 13. There must not only, yes, be the remover of, of guilt, the taking away of sin, but there must be a positive, perfect righteousness if the sinner is to ever enter heaven. Deuteronomy chapter 10 and the verses 12 and 13. And now, Israel, what doth the Lord thy God require of thee but to fear the Lord thy God, to walk in all his ways, and to love him, and to serve the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, to keep the commandments of the Lord which is, uh, and his statutes, which I command thee this day for thy good. That's what the Lord requires. Perfect all His ways, with all our heart, with all our soul. He also requires perpetual obedience. That is, always. Deuteronomy chapter 5, go back and verse 29. Deuteronomy chapter 5 and verse 29, and it tells us there, Oh, that there were such a heart in them, that they would fear me and keep my commandments Always, and always is the key word. The only obedience acceptable before God is one which is in which 100% of the individual keeps 100% of the law 100% of the time. And James 2 and the verse 10 sets a standard. It leaves no wriggle room. 
For whosoever shall keep the law, and yet offend in one point, he is guilty of all. And so that's God's standard. 100% of the individual. The heart, the soul, the mind, the strength. 100% of the law. 100% of the time. That's what God requires. That's the obedience that is required for us to receive the reward of eternal life. You see, the biblical teaching that God requires a perfect, personal, perpetual obedience to His law, and eternal life being the consequent, it's taught right at the very beginning in the covenant of works that was made with Adam. You see, after God created Adam, he told them not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And if Adam had to obey 100% personal, perpetual, perfect obedience to that, he would have obtained eternal life. That would have been the reward for his obedience. He would have had everlasting life in the presence of God, access to the tree of life. However, by his one act of disobedience, it caused him to be ejected from the garden. And the tree of life was subsequently guarded by the cherubim, holding flaming swords, those swords being representative of the justice of God, and that prevented Adam to access to the tree of life. And we're told all that in Genesis chapter 3, verse 24. The comment has been made, one may therefore conclude that the covenant of works contained both a penalty and a reward. Had there been no sin, access to the tree would not have been cut off. One single act brought the penalty. And so that's God's standard. 100% of the individual, 100% of the law, 100% of the time. Now, in Revelation 22, in the verse 14, we see that the right to the tree of life and entrance into the heavenly city are linked. And who has the right to enter in? Well, the opening words of that verse tell us that. Blessed are they that do His commands. The obedient, they enter in. Those with a perfect righteousness. Now, that verse is not teaching us, blessed are they that do His commandments, that heaven is gained uh, on merit of what we do. But it's teaching that those who have access to the tree of life, of those who can enter into heaven, are those who have a perfect obedience or a perfect righteousness. And you know where I'm going with this. A sinner, none of us, none of us have that perfect righteousness. None of us of ourselves have perfectly kept the law of God. It is those, only those, who are the doers of the law, in its entirety, who are justified. And this is where Christ comes in. This is where the obedience, the perfect obedience of the Lord Jesus Christ comes in. Because He, in His whole person, in His in his heart, his soul, his mind, and his strength, he kept the law of God in its entirety all the time. And thus for us, he achieved, he procured a perfect righteousness. 
And that obedience of Christ, we're told in Philippians chapter 2, verse 8, it culminated at the cross. What does it tell us there? That he was obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. It was absolutely necessary for Christ to go to the cross because there he fulfilled all righteousness. And by that, his people could have eternal life. Not only did he eliminate the penalty for sin by a sacrificial death, but he also obtained the heavenly and eternal reward by a life of perfect obedience. And so, the requirement of a perfect righteousness also necessitated that atonement be made. John Murray writes in his book, The Atonement, Salvation requires not only the forgiveness of sins, but also justification. And justification adequate to the situation in which lost mankind is demands a righteousness such as belongs to none other than the incarnate Son of God, a righteousness with divine property and quality, in other words, perfection. Only the Son of God incarnate, fulfilling to the full extent of the commitments of the Father's will, could have provided such a righteousness. And so that's the fourth reason. Number one, the justice and righteousness of God. Number two, the holiness of God. Number three, the law of God. Number four, the requirement of a perfect righteousness. Number five, the atonement was absolutely necessary because of the teaching of the gospel or the word of God. And really this relates into the veracity or the truthfulness of God. You see, when the New Testament epistles explain the death of Christ, they do so in terms of necessity. For example, there in Hebrews chapter 9, the author of Hebrews, he says that without the shedding of blood is no remission. If the method of salvation depended solely on God's arbitrary decision, oh, I'm going to forgive that person, then the shedding of blood would not have been necessary. The author of Hebrews, he's speaking under divine inspiration. He not only says that the blood is necessary, but only one type of blood was necessary. The blood of Christ. We read it in Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 4. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and of goats should take away sins. And then down in verse number 11, it says, And every priest standeth daily ministering and offering oftentimes the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But this man, after he offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God. If God could simply by divine decree pardon sin, then the central message of Hebrews 9 and 10 would be basically totally untrue. Furthermore, if God could have appeased his own wrath by a mere act of volition or by his own choice, without first demanding any satisfaction, well then all the passages in the New Testament which speak about Christ propitiating the wrath of God, well they would be unnecessary. I already mentioned the last time the must passages concerning the sufferings of the Lord Jesus Christ. Take, for example, in Mark chapter 8, in the verse 31. It tells us there, And he, that's Christ, began to teach them that the Son of God must suffer many things 
and be rejected of the elders and of the chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. The teaching of the gospel, the veracity of the Word of God, the truthfulness of God Himself necessitates that the atonement had to be made. One last reason. Atonement was absolutely necessary because of the greatness of the sacrifice. The greatness of the sacrifice. The greatness of the sacrifice that God was prepared to make, it points to the absolute necessity of the atonement. God, He gave His only begotten Son to be subjected to the bitter sufferings and the shameful death of the cross. And it is not conceivable that God would do that unnecessarily. Absolutely unconceivable. Why on earth would God do that if it was not necessary? The very idea that God would send His Son to the cross for any other reason than necessity is not only a denial of God's wisdom, but it also borders on blasphemy that God would do that to His only beloved Son unnecessarily. Dr. A. A. Hodge, he puts it this way. The sacrifice, or the sacrifice, that's the cross, would be most painfully irrelevant if it was, were anything short of absolutely necessary in the revelation to the end assigned to be obtained, i.e., unless it be indeed the only possible means to the salvation of sinful men. God surely would not have made His Son a wanton sacrifice to bear a point of will. The cross cannot be explained but in terms of its being absolutely necessary. No other way. The Apostle Paul, he argues in Galatians 3 verse 20, that Christ would not have been sacrificed if the law could have given life itself. He says there, if there had been a law given which could have given life, verily righteousness should have been by the law. But what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh. God sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, condemned sin in the flesh. The cross was absolutely necessary. There was no other way. And here's six biblical reasons why. Why there was no other way that God could save poor lost sinners than the cross. The righteousness and the justice of God, the holiness of God, the law of God, the requirement of a perfect righteousness, the teaching of the gospel or the truthfulness of God, and the greatness of the sacrifice. Now, even though this is the case, there are still those who raise objections to the necessity of the atonement. And I want to deal with three of those objections just before I close. There are those that say that the necessity of the atonement, it undermines the love of God. It undermines the love of God. Generally speaking, those who deny the necessity of the atonement they also disown the strict justice of God by which he must necessarily punish sin. And they undermine the justice of God or they deny it altogether. 
It's very common among them to assume that love, well, it is the central and all-controlling perfection of God, and that His justice must be viewed and interpreted through His love. But all God's attributes are in perfect harmony. He never exercises His love at the expense of His righteousness and, and His justice. And support for this objection, saying that it undermines the love of God, well, they seek to find support in passages such as 1 John chapter 4 and the verse 8, God is love. But that does not mean that God is essentially and only love. Because the Word also tells us that God is light, and in Him is no darkness at all. God would not be love in the true sense of the Word unless He was also just. It would be loving to let your child off doing something wrong and letting them to live recklessly in life. How would that be loving? How would it be loving to not have a standard, to not have boundaries to protect your children from harm? It wouldn't be loving. God's love, if it was like that, of Eli's for his wicked son, who didn't condemn, who didn't place boundaries, who didn't apply justice, if God's love was like that, well, it wouldn't be much of a love because Eli's love is condemned in Scripture. That he didn't rebuke and exercise justice upon his own son, sons. Another objection to the absolute necessity of the atonement is that it gives a wrong representation of God. You see, there's others argue that, well, men, they often freely forgive someone who has wronged them. And therefore, if the atonement is necessary, they say, well, God, then he can't forgive sinners before receiving satisfaction, and that would make God inferior to man. But this objection, it fails to discern that God cannot simply be compared to a person who can forgive someone else without doing despite to their, their justice. God is a judge of all the earth. And He must maintain the law. He must exercise His justice. And while men, yes, in this life, well, they just freely forgive, as it says, God cannot, because He is the lawgiver. And he must base his forgiveness on the satisfaction of his justice. And all our objection to the absolute necessity is that to hold such a view, well, it creates a division between the divine trinity. They say that's what it does. And they say, well, in the, the absolute atonement, the necessity of it, well, it portrays God the Father as a strict, stern judge who insisted on the execution of justice upon Christ the pitiful Savior, who satisfied the legal demand and appeased God's holy wrath. And they argue there, well, there's not oneness in the work, the work of salvation. There's God, as if He's opposed to Christ, or as if He's opposed to sinners. And they say, well, there's, there's no oneness in that work. But the Bible teaches us that the triune God provided freely for sinners, and they forget that the whole work of atonement had originated in the good pleasure of God. 
The father made sacrifice in the giving of a son, and a son came voluntarily and willingly to offer himself. All three persons of the Trinity are involved in the salvation of the lost. There's no schism, division of gulf between them, but rather there is the most beautiful harmony. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 2 is an example of the blessed unity of the Trinity in our salvation. It says, They are elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through sanctification of the Spirit, unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Christ. And so these objections, oh, it undermines the love of God. Oh, it, it's a wrong representation of God. It makes him inferior to man who could just freely forgive others. Or that it creates a division between the Trinity. Well, all those objections are answered by the Scripture to show their faults. And once again, it's clear that God, when He had resolved to save guilty sinners, atonement at Calvary was the only way that He could do it. Christ, He was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones said that no doctrine of the atonement is adequate, which does not explain Christ's cry. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And why was the Savior abandoned? Because he was making atonement. God found or contrived a way. And that's not to say it was difficult for him or that he was metaphorically scratching his head. He was perplexed. It's not to say that. But through the cross, divine wisdom ensured that mercy could be extended while at the same tr time truth could be upheld. Also through the cross work of Christ, righteousness could be fulfilled and peace would be the consequence. What a marvel the cross is. Any wonder Paul said, God forbid that I should glory save in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. One last thing before I close. Something of the necessity of the atonement can be inferred from etymology. Now, I wouldn't base my argument for the necessity of the atonement on this, but we can. It can be inferred, and it is implied. For the Latin word we translate it as cross. It's the root term behind our English words crux or crucial both of which refer to that which is essential. And without doubt, the crucifixion of Christ was necessary to save the lost. Not simply because God decreed it, but because it was the only way in which he could be consistent with his own nature and save us from our sins. So, so far we have considered an explanation of the atonement and the essentiality of the atonement. Next time, Lord willing, we'll consider the errors of the atonement and the essence of the atonement, the extent of the atonement, and other things beside, and we'll see how many we get through. But I trust the Lord will bless His Word to our hearts, and I trust that we'll be so grounded 
and we will be centered on the cross because there is and was no other way through which we could be reconciled to our God. Let's bow in prayer. Our God and our Father, we, we thank Thee. We rejoice in divine wisdom, love, mercy, and grace for the plan of redemption and for the cross work of Jesus Christ. Lord, there is no other way. While many false religions would claim there's many ways to God, would claim, O oh God, to obtain merit with God through their works, we thank Thee for the one work of Christ. We thank Thee for the blood that was shed. We thank Thee, Lord, for the necessity of the atonement. And we thank the Lord for the atonement that was made. Rejoice, O oh God, in bloodshed. And we thank Thee that all that Christ has done for us. So, Lord, hear our prayer. Accept of our thanks for your mercy to us. Bless us in the season of prayer and then into morning worship. And do our souls good, for we ask this all in the Saviour's precious and his worthy name. Amen.